and welcome to the Cleontel podcast, a brand new series to accompany the release of the Cleontel's new album, I Am Not There Anymore, which came out on the 28th of July, 2023. My name is Robin Allender, and over the course of the next few weeks, I will be talking to the band about the making of the new album and the inspiration behind it, and I will also be talking to fans of the band about what makes the music of the Cleontel so special. In case you're new to the band, here's a bit of background. The Cleontel formed in the early 90s in Fleet, near Basingstoke, UK. For the bulk of their career, the band has been made up of Alastair MacLean on vocals and guitar, James Hornsey on bass, and Mark Keane on drums and piano. But previous members have included singer and guitarist Innes Phillips, who shared songwriting duties on early Cleontel demos, drummers Howard Monk and Daniel Evans, and multi-instrumentalist Mel Dracy. The Cleontel released a series of 7-inch singles in the late 90s, which were collected on the band's first album, Suburban Light, which came out in 2000. Since then, they have released a string of albums which have expanded on their sound, but which remain rooted in a core aesthetic of sublime 60s-influenced melodies, shimmering finger-picked guitar, and haunting and evocative lyrics. The Cleontel are usually described as an indie pop band, but that label doesn't really cover the extraordinary depth of their music and the tangible sense of atmosphere in their songs, autumnal, mysterious and nostalgic. I Am Not There Anymore is probably their biggest departure so far in terms of production and is certainly their most ambitious record, but it is still very much a Cleontel album. It's a profoundly beautiful collection of songs and a deeply moving meditation on love and loss. If you want to catch the band live, they are about to embark on a tour of the US, starting in Boston on the 9th of August. Head over to theclientel.co.uk for more information. In episode one, I was joined by Alistair McLean and James Hornsey to discuss the band's history and musical influences and to talk about how the new album came together. James arrived early, so I had the chance to talk to him first about his perspective on the record and about his role in the band. Well, we're here, we're waiting for Alistair to arrive, but James is here nice and punctually. Well, not that punctual, but <laughs> slightly yeah. more. Well, yeah, you're ahead of time, so it's all good. But uh, yeah, we're here to discuss the new album, I'm Not There Anymore. And uh, before Alistair gets here... And what's he, what's he like to work with? <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer that one. <laughs> is he is he is he a kind of Paul McCartney? You have to play this bass line in this way, or is how how collaborative are, are the songs? Um, I I've never I don't think he's no one time I think he told me that like a tiny part of a bass line to play, which I reluctantly did. So <laughs> like, I won't tell you in which songs. So. Okay. I think since then he's had no involvement in the bass whatsoever. Really, okay. so yeah. But Though he started adding his own sub bass lines now, just yeah. to just to kind of go through the back door there, I think so. But no, it's pretty collaborative, especially this album. Actually, I think of all the albums we've done, so because mm. um, between us, well, Al did the majority, and Mark and I also helped with the string arranging a little bit. Um, does Alistair bring in the songs then, or do you collaborate on the songwriting and lyrics, or does he kind of bring something in? The, the lyrics are all Al's work, yeah. and yeah, he generally brings us a song, sends us a little demo recording of it through, and then we kind of add our parts from there. Mm. So, yeah, but it is—it does feel like a big departure. This one, 
what, what did he do differently? It, it doesn't to me, really. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've lived with it for so long. I just yeah. uh, it's kind of evolved. But well, it's still um, definitely a clientele album. You know, it still sounds. Yeah, like that, but there are some, some some kind of big departures. There. Yeah, well, we got a computer, and uh, <laughs> Al had lots of time on his hand. Right, I guess during COVID, so yeah, um, had fun playing around with it. You, you should have heard some of the things that were coming through to us, but like, really, yeah, yeah. this is quite modest by comparison. What's on the album in the end? So. Like, did he have a big disco phase? <laughs> <laughs> this will be on the uh, outtakes record that we do. <laughs> right. later, I think. So. Well, he did say the last time I interviewed him. He said he'd been listening to drum and bass and and various other kind of jazz and flamenco, and he said the new album will, will probably still end up sounding like a clientele album. It's <laughs> inevitable. That's what happens, I think. But this one's probably managed to avoid that more than any other one. But mm. yeah. So what, how does it work? Into when 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 he brings this the song in, do you kind of ever ask him like? You know, what I always want to ask him is, what does that mean? No, never. <laughs> really? Never. No, I don't want to go there. So, right. But yeah, I don't you don't just... talk about the, what the meanings of the, the no, song yeah. is. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I have my own interpretations. So. Yeah. They're, they're beautifully enigmatic. Yeah. Uh, it's good that they stay that way, I think. So. Yeah. <laughs> how, and how are you going to recreate these songs live? Because We've slight... got absolutely no idea. Oh, really? Uh, we had our first rehearsal in... God knows how long. Mm. Um, well, I guess we played a gig last year, but we weren't playing any of these songs then. So yeah. we had a rehearsal to try and start putting them together. Um, I think Mark's going to have a lot of work to do. Okay. Um, maybe we'll have some kind of machine that can trigger samples and things. So yeah. But um, yeah, we've got another rehearsal in a couple of weeks, so we'll have more of an idea after that, I think. But nice. Because you're set up on stage. When I saw you last year in London, it's very minimal, isn't it? It's just very, just, yes. No yeah. pedals. Tuning pedal. A tuning pedal. Uh, yeah, you've got to be in tune. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think Al has a distortion pedal, which he uses for about 30 seconds. So. Right. Um, I love that, but, though. Yeah. Sound checks before this album must have been... Pretty easy. No, never. Oh, really? No, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But, yeah. why, why is that? Because it's, you're a quiet band, I suppose. Because we're just very fussy, I think. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So um, you've got electronic drum parts, you've got kind of sub-bass. There's also a lot of orchestral arrangements. Are you going to try and bring any of those elements in? Well, we've worked with the cellists before who did the recordings um, in a live setting, so hopefully, yeah, we can get him involved at least. It'd be great to do a show with mm. the full quartet and brass parts and yeah. stuff playing as well so but um yeah we'll have to wait and see on that one i think but yeah. but for the moment we're trying to work out how to play them with just the three of us because obviously the first thing we'll be doing is going on tour to the u.s and mm. budget isn't there for a string quartet for that one i don't think so it's all been wasted on a podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh that sounds it sounds very exciting though i mean how, how do you think the fans will react to the the new songs, because, I mean, the first thing you notice with the, with the first song is, you know, no guitar for for the first kind of minute or so. Well, it seems to be going down well. That's good. But, yeah, I'll we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. So. First review came in today. That was good. So. Oh, great. Where was that? Uncut. Oh, great. So. A favourable... Yeah, favourable and, and large. Usually we get one paragraph if we're lucky. So, yeah, yeah this was a good one. So That's good. I mean, there's a sense, I suppose, that your last album was... 2017. It's been a while. And the yeah. one before that was a, maybe another... Quite, 2010, I think. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of quite big event albums when they come, I suppose. They are for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I asked James about when the band first got together and what the secret is to their longevity. Ninety-one, I joined, so thirty-two right. years ago. Yeah, ninety-seven or eight, I guess. The first single came out. And then we did a, just a run of seven inches. Yeah, yeah, and that was all collected into Suburban Light. It was. I think we were on the verge of calling it quits, really, after a third or fourth one. But they, somehow they found their way to America and yeah. um, and to merge, and yeah. the rest is history, really. But right. amazing. I mean, over thirty-two years. How's that? landscape changed i mean it's changed massively hasn't it but how i find it hard to believe bands can stay together in this climate now with streaming and everything so how do you manage that by not t- taking it too seriously i think right. yeah <laughs> that's but, great well so you kind of get together every seven years yeah like, emerge that... from the crypt <laughs> yeah i guess just having realistic expectations mm. um we had very unrealistic expectations when we moved to London, I think. I think we thought we'd be famous within uh, about a week. Yeah. It didn't happen quite that quickly, so, or at all. But, yeah, I think we moved up in 97 after university. So mm. then we thought, okay, we'll take it seriously now. So Yeah. So do you, do you all manage it with full time with, you know, jobs as well and everything like that? Part-time. Yeah, part-time for me, but, mm. like, yeah. 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 That's great. And then you just put in a holiday request saying, I'm going on tour to the States for a few weeks. Yeah, well, I don't think my current manager even knows I'm in a band. So. Oh, really? <laughs> That's nice. I put the request in and it's been accepted anyway. Yeah. No, no questions asked. That's good. I had to do that thing at work today where you, I had to print the interview questions out. And there's always that awkward moment when you're using the printer for personal use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ever have that moment? <laughs> the one day I actually stay in the office late just to make use of the printer. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. great you mentioned the, earlier there about the um, you know those first seven inches finding their way to merge it, it feels like um, you've always done very well in America not that you haven't done well here but why, why do you think it took a long time here so. yeah why do you think there was that resonance in the States you know, I, th- I think with the time we were coming in um, late 90s Everyone was obsessed with Oasis and Blur, I guess, over here. So um, it was the wrong time for us in this country. There was a lot less interest in the US and that kind of thing, and a lot less attention to trends and yeah. I don't know. Um, and I guess we're very English, which they quite like out there. So Yeah. But then in a way, there's nothing more English than Blur and Oasis. So that, that well, did not, not, it's not quite the England that they're looking for, no. I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a world away. Uh, and it does seem to me that you are, you have always been outliers from trends and things, and things have come and gone, but you've always kind of... We've just done our own thing, really. Yeah. yeah. We took a break here to grab a quick beer, and we then went on to talk about a song on the new album called Through the Roses, for which James wrote a beautiful Robert Kirby-esque arrangement. Oh, no, I'm worried you're going to get smashed. Now. Well, you know, you get some gossip, at least. <laughs> so. Yeah, you can ask me that question about what's our like to work with again after this. So. Nice one. Cheers. Amazing. Yeah, at the time I hadn't really heard 
the arrangements Al was doing so much. So if you listen to the album, you can pretty much tell which one's the one I did because it's very different. Yeah, much more simple. How did you how did you approach that uh, arranging? Um, just playing with MIDI samples because we bought the computer mm. and we already had that set up at home anyway because my wife was doing recording for herself. So I was just having fun playing different string noises and mm. I found a bassoon part which I particularly liked oh, but no. we never managed to find a bassoon player uh, unfortunately. Hard to find in yeah. London town, yeah. Um, but, um, and then I was kind of struggling, I had some ideas but struggling to kind of fit them together and then so we, it became a collaborative mm. effort on that one. So, But I think I was having great fun with Ableton just mm. working his arrangements out and they're quite extraordinary really. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a little ashamed of mine now after hearing his one. So, well, some but, of them are extreme, quite abstract and you know, yeah, surrealist. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously they went to a, a friend of ours who um, scored them for us, um, and had to kind of make sense of some of the more crazy parts that Al had written. So, um, and then. I think there was one day in the studio with the strings to do all of it. And really? like it was pretty intense. Yeah. And maybe two, there was two days in total in the studio, but I had brass to do as well. So I'm not sure I was in the U S at the time. So I missed, missed that unfortunately, but, wow. but yeah, it was pretty intense. I think um, it's real session pro stuff to be able to do all that, isn't it? Yeah. I think there was a few hairs turning gray that day. So. <laughs> were, were there any particular influences on the arrangement? Cause some of it to me, Calls to mind brighter later style. I would not on my no influence at all on my string arrangement. Okay. Um, I was just literally thinking. I was writing it the same way I write my bass lines. Really, mm. just trying to find another melody that works with what Al's already done. And his songs leave lots of space for melodies, so that's mm. um, so that's makes it easier. So, um, but it was very difficult because I just kept rewriting the bass line I'd already written. Um, right. In different registers, so like that was uh, that's where I needed a bit of help, really, just to take it in a different direction. So, but that's one thing I noticed about the album, particularly that last side, is that a lot of the songs seem to be based on these looping chords that gradually layer and layer and layer, and you know, with these counter melodies coming in. Yeah, it's kind of a really beautiful way to end the album, I think, with those kind of suite of songs at the end. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Sort of I through the roses is as well, isn't it? In that, yes, in that, in that yeah. stage. Yeah, and um, with the more kind of experimental ones, you know, Alistair's doing, he's credited as doing beats and tapes and yeah, liner notes. So. a lot of beats <laughs> yeah. and a lot of tapes. Yeah. So, so is that Ableton as well? Is that- yeah, I guess so, yeah. Um, obviously this was in lockdown most of it, so we were doing, we were working separately a lot of the time, um, but we were getting sent things through. And it was, yeah, Ableton was the, the key to all of this really, so... But then, so it would kind of start with a song, normal clientele style. Mm. We would go and rehearse it a couple of times, then go to the studio and record it while it's fresh. And then it would get taken away and I would do things to it. So, mm. um, and then they would come back to us at a later date. Some barely recognisable. There's been a lot of time passed as well since we first started recording them. So so I had to relearn how to play them to some extent. Um it's almost a product of lockdown, the album, in a way. In a way, yeah. 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 Certainly had the, the time and space to. Well, I'm not sure how much time and space I had having to do childcare as well. But, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I had time to work on my bassoon part. So. That's good. <laughs> yeah, you learned the bassoon, <laughs> <laughs> the MIDI bassoon. Um, that's uh, you mentioned. You know, Al- Al- Alistair's uh, childcare. There, it's, maybe this is a question I'll ask him. But it does seem to be an album that seems to be about childhood in some ways. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of um, a lot of 1997 on it. So, what do you mean by that? Like, well, it, it seems to be. Looking back to that period on it, um, right when lot. you were when you were young and you first started getting going. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, references to his mother and stuff. Mm. Um, so more personal stuff than for Al. Definitely a question for Al, I think, rather right. than me that one. Yeah, but sure. um, yeah, it, it seemed to me more about early childhood and influence of children's literature and yeah, that kind of almost childlike way of looking at the world in some of the songs like some of the songs I think we've always had that to some extent yeah. in the music so or in the lyrics so. yeah there's a song called chalk flowers which i think is particularly beautiful and it seems to be what's the center point of the album for me right that's interesting is yeah. that do you think that's I'm no on the right track with that or do you think that's <laughs> purely subjective it's purely subjective and it's interesting to hear different people's yeah. there's one song on that which is my favorite on the album and i've barely seen it get noticed yet or mentioned and it's ah. puzzling i'm not going to say which one it is but interesting. Like, yeah. is it through the roses no no it's not <laughs> through the roses <laughs> when i first heard it as well i thought there were two really big pop songs which is blue over blue and lady gray mm. And then I was quite surprised that the second single you chose was Dying in May, which seemed yeah, a very non-single, like, brilliant song. But yeah. Well, I think it was quite important to put it out there and mm. to see what people thought. And we could have gone with a very conservative choice yeah. of Lady Grey as the next one. Yeah. And it would probably please the fans more. But, um, but as I say, the response has been good to right. this one. It was actually not our choice in the end. We decided to just let the label and the press people decide because we've there were so many different options for singles on this record mm. i mean there's a, there's a lot of very catchy songs on it i think that would work as singles um and everyone had their own idea about what they should be so um i personally wouldn't have chosen blue over blue as the first song but they um everyone else seemed to think that was the, the logical choice so i just thought well we'll just let's leave it to the experts we'll make the record they can do the rest of it so. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beaut blue over blue I really love it yeah and I mean I actually I, I it wasn't I didn't love the song I was just d- didn't see it as a single so much yeah. well, it was more of an album track but as one, once we got dressed up in the armour and started making the video I it made it started making some sense so. <laughs> tell, tell me about that Who, whose idea was that it wasn't mine <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think it's been a dream of Alistair's always uh, not one he's ever let us know about before, but like to get dressed up in armor. So um, it was a very valiant attempt to actually play the guitar with the, the kind of glove with, on, isn't with it? The uh, what do they call them? Gauntlets. Oh, gauntlets. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. it's, it's not easy. No. Not even playing the bass. So God knows what it's like playing six strings. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a great video, though. It, it was um, fun to make. Yeah, I think I was emailing Alistair at the time, and you mentioned the unbelievable cost of hiring suits of armor. Yeah, we won't talk about the cost. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need midi suits of armor for next time. <laughs> no, it was a good yeah, video. we could have gone for plastic replicas, but it wouldn't have been so authentic. No. And yeah, those things are heavy as well. They they yeah. they hurt how after. A, you can see how tired we're looking in <laughs> in the video. I mean, I was really ill at the time as well, so oh, no. it was. Um, so yeah, we're just tired and sweaty, and um, 
I could barely feel our shoulders by the end. And yeah. Uh, yeah. How did people fight in them then? I guess they just practiced a lot. We, yeah. Our fighting history isn't so extensive in the clientele. So, like, um, pretty difficult for us. But yeah. yeah. But yeah, you wouldn't last very long, I don't think. No, it's um, a great video. Are you going to do any more vid- vids before? I'm sure Al had all sorts of ideas about musketeers and toreadors and stuff, but um, I think the budget's run out now. Right. Yeah, no more, no more costumes. It's a shame. You could. Have, what about bringing them on stage? You could have done. That. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we uh, they've gone back to their their home now. The okay. suits of armor. So yeah. just have to imagine us. We could get cardboard ones for stage, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Some kind of projection. Yeah. Or hologram. You know, everyone's <laughs> doing these days. I think those pictures going to haunt us now. So. <laughs> That's we cool. sent other pictures off to the to the press guys mm. of us in civvies. Not seen much sign of those yet. So no, like, it, it, it seems it to be. <laughs> <laughs> Your work's doing a Google search of you. <laughs> 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 yeah. really wanted to ask you about the first song because fables of the silver link is quite an epic yeah it's uh yeah it's quite an achievement that song i think yeah i want to say the longest cleontel song maybe Uh, possibly yeah i think there's some versions of lamplight that have gone on way longer than that on stage probably but um yeah longest on record i guess Yeah. yeah um again al can probably tell you more about this but i think his intention was to have a song which was cohesive but not repeating itself at all. I think there's one bit that repeats twice possibly, but the rest of it, everything's unique in it, but kind of it flows very well, I think. And Yeah, I think it's an amazing yeah. piece of writing actually. So. It's incredible. I mean, it seems to be maybe six or seven distinct songs. Yeah. Almost. yeah. But they do, they, and there are all these beautiful kind of linking bits which link into the next. Yeah. And each one has a very distinct feel, you know. Bossa Nova style section. The, the funny thing is, from a bass point of view, usually if it's a three-minute pop song, it takes me lots of cutting, and editing and stuff to get the part down. With that one, I kind of did it in one take. Really? Yeah, it was just a... One-take wonder. It, it never happens. But I, there was a few bits to improve on and edit afterwards, but like it wasn't like, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, yeah it was interesting, so... That was the song we wanted as a band to have as the first lead single, but having an eight-minute video and an eight-minute song for radio isn't a good idea, apparently. So. <laughs> yeah, well, Richard Dawson's just released a 45-minute long video. Has he really? Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> We've been too cowardly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a fantastic song. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm I'm going to ask Alistair about meanings, but I feel like I'm not going to get very far well you might get further with him i think so right. like, yeah <laughs> i could it, give you my ideas but they wouldn't be necessarily any better than yours so sure. yeah i mean that, I, I am stumped by that one but it's incredibly beautiful and some beautiful images i mean that's one of the other things you notice about the album is there are these images and words yeah. that keep recurring all the way through yes they yeah, thread through the album it's uh, and, and musical motifs as well mm. come and go um I mean, the temptation as a listener is to think, oh, because this is repeating, it must mean something. Just that we don't have any more ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of, it's almost like you're trying to crack the code, but you, it seems to be the, the purpose of it is that it is mysterious, I think. It's yeah, it's enigmatic. It's, um, 
Yeah. The one I thought I really admired your bass playing on was the Garden Eye Mantra. Ah, yes. Because Almost like a lead part. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not quite the bass solo I've been looking for for all these years, but yeah. Is <laughs> Mark Dewar a drum it, solo then at some point? Oh, wow, that's a long way down the line. But like, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't actually supposed to be like that because there was a verse over that first instrumental part originally. So I wasn't playing it with the intention of that being so exposed. So, but yeah, it kind of works, I think. So. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm. I mean, because. And then there's no bass at all in the latter part of the song. Which oh, I, there's just the sub bass. Yeah, because that was written after i'd done my recording and i think i was at the editing point and i was in the us so it was just like well it works without the bass let's just leave it at that okay. so. because it's such a slow song the bass really has all that space to move through mm. the beats and everything it's really really yeah very very nicely played i mean i've Thank got you. a note for that song which is um <laughs> ask alistair are you rapping <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of rapping, isn't it? We, it is, he's isn't got it? history there. There's a bit oh, of really? rapping on the last album as well, I think, isn't there? Oh, really? Which yeah, song? Um, um, oh, what's it called? Falling Asleep. I think there's a bit of rapping going on okay, there. Okay, yeah. And possibly on another one previously as well, yeah. Well, he's definitely done a lot of you know, spoken but Not word. enough people talk about no. Al's rapping. <laughs> we can go into that in detail later. At this point, Alistair arrived... And we started our conversation by talking about the writing and background of I Am Not There Anymore. How are we doing? Pretty well, I'd say. Not too bad. Pretty well. Good. How does it feel to have finished the album? Because it's quite a behemoth. Um, well, we finished it last summer, so um, I had a long time to live with it. This one feels better than the others, I would say. <laughs> and that we're still listening to it, so... Right. And did it have a, a long gestation period? Yeah, it had a very long one, didn't it? Mm. I mean, I think we were in the studio, the first sessions for it were probably about four years ago. Yeah. I mean, the idea was like when a song got written, we recorded it immediately so that it had those kind of like mistakes in it, like the the, the lopsidedness that before your brain imposes symmetry and monotony onto a piece of art, you you, you have like lopsided and rough edges and, and I wanted to, the idea was to to just completely capture those record it immediately um at Bark Studio with Brian O'Shaughnessy and then take away the tracks and then start to think about what to add to them or actually in a lot of cases realize that what we'd recorded wasn't a song it was a part of a song and we wanted to add another part to it afterwards and so that's what took a lot of time really we would have recorded the album in about as it stands in about five days, but uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, jiggery pokery, wasn't there, with arrangements? A lot of jiggery pokery. There was a lot of that, yeah, a lot. So, uh, yeah, it feels good to have it out and finished, but I think there's always a slight feeling of emptiness when you finish something, you know, and and, and you start, like today, one of the first reviews uh, came in and it's a really, really good one, and it couldn't have been better. The guy totally understood what we were talking about. Um, and so that felt like, oh, phew, mm. you know. Uh, not that I like to read reviews, but it did feel like, oh, phew, okay, okay. Because there's so many things you could say about it that would be negative if you really wanted to. But this this completely understood what we were trying to do. So um, that felt like a – that. now it feels like it's finished to me. Mm. Now I've read that review. Mm. It does feel like 
each of your albums, I mean, when you when Music for the Age of Miracles came out, um, there was an interview you did where you said it came about partly because you ran into a friend, Anthony Harmer, and it was working with him that kind of allowed the album to take shape. So was there a similar catalyst for this one, or was it just that enough time had passed to start working on something new? I think for me, at least, I can only talk for myself, but it was watching what Ant did with that record and seeing the way that he could chop songs up on a computer, the way he could put beats in, the way that he had. Um, I would, I would have, like, I would say, well, what about some drum and bass stuff? And he'd say, well, you know, you can't do drum and bass with loads of guitar arpeggios. It needs to be simple because the drums are so complicated. And and I was watching him, and I, and then we bought a computer, and I started to do it myself and gradually gained confidence in in those kind of uh, um, um, skills. But, I mean, it was it was just, I don't know, it was just done. It just feels to me like it was done, the recording part was done really quickly. Mm-hmm. What made the wait six years was the waiting for something to happen with, with ideas. Like, okay, so we've got this part of the song, and now we need another part, but we don't know what that's going to be like. And I'm really against, I personally really profoundly dislike working on music, like working on a song, you know, mm-hmm. saying, oh, let's write, let's sit down, oh, is the first line going to be hard? Oh, you know, I hate that. It's like, no, no, don't do that. Um, wait until the idea comes into your head. And if you can, then preserve it. And if that takes three years, that takes three years. Because at least then you're not writing for the sake of writing. There's enough records out in the world already, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, it was with the waiting. It was like, it was just the waiting for the counter melodies, for the ideas to come, for the arrangements to come that made sense. So it was doing nothing. Mm. That's what took so long. It makes it sound like I'm a reed through which the Lord Almighty blows his music. <laughs> and I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, I do think that I, good ideas will just come when they come. Mm. Like you hear them in your head. Yeah. Or I do anyway. And and then it's time to set them down. And, and if you try and force it, usually you make a piece of music that's planned and thought through and visualized and almost certainly embarrassing and almost certainly something that will pollute and drag down the rest of your songs. Mm. And that's that's the way I work. I wouldn't try and prescribe it to anyone else, but that's the way I write songs. Mm. And what about these kind of new elements that are on the record or or newer elements, I suppose, but, you know, there's speaker-shattering sub-bass and um, <laughs> some kind of abstract string arrangements and um, drum loops and tape loops and, you know, um, very complex song structures. Where did that come from? Well, for the, the sub-bass came from when my son was a bit younger. I used to take him to the playground. And at that time, all over North London, there was a song being kind of sodcasted called <laughs> Ashdom mm. by a band, uh, a trap band called M83. I think Alistair has been watching too much Made in Chelsea. He meant OFB and not M83. Here's a little clip of Ashdem. I loved the production on it and I didn't have Shazam. And like I've only found it much later, but um, for, for a while I was going, oh, how, can, how can I get a noise like that? What can the computer do to make a noise like that? And, and I was even, the great thing about today is you can look it up on the internet. Yeah. You can say, how do I get like a trap sub bass sound with Ableton software? And then there'll be someone, someone <laughs> telling you, well, you have to like, kind of go for this hip hop thing, you know? Yeah. And then um, 
it was uh, it was so it was kind of stuff like that. That's where the sub bass came came from. The some of the rhythms came from stuff like um, listening to Rashid Ali's drums on um, uh, uh, like for instance the Olatunji concert by John Coltrane. Some of the drumming and the percussion on some of the later. 70s Miles Davis records it's stuff that we could never do it's like how can you say to someone yeah yeah play drums like Rashid Ali because only Rashid Ali can play drums like Rashid Ali mm. and so be, be beginning to to be able and to analyze those patterns though and to bring in some sampling and to bring in and then Mark to play over it I was suddenly like it's actually sounding like in moments there's glimpses of like a free jazz drummer here but we didn't want to make free jazz because free mm. jazz has already been made. We didn't want to remake those records. It was like, but we can bring that kind of sound in, that that pulse that that's there. But um, um, it, and it's so fluid and it's so beautiful. And then we can use it to stitch together bits of a song. And so those those kind of ideas came, I suppose, from decades of listening to that kind of music, like listening to dub, listening to contemporary classical music. Um, and being and then suddenly having it within our grasp, you know, like the really dissonant string quartet stuff on my childhood. It was a, I, there's a way there's a thing on Ableton. It's like voodoo. You you can take a you can take a recording of a simple melody and you can um, turn it to MIDI. So it's audio to MIDI. So you have a, a computer file that has the duration and the frequency of the notes. And it works for really simple melodies. Like you could whistle a melody and it will score it in MIDI for you. Mm. So I took a recording of the wind blowing and said, right. score that Ableton. I was just trying to break it. Yeah, yeah. Like what, what are the limits this thing can do? And it came, and of course it read it all wrong and it came up with all sorts of weird dissonant notes. Yeah. And I looked at this MIDI, MIDI file and I said, how about I take this bit into one track, this bit into another track, this and so on with four, and then two can be violin, one will be viola, one will be cello. Mm. And then I sent it through to the guy who was helping us score for the string quartet, and he almost had a coronary. Right. <laughs> he said, like, this is unplayable. Yeah. And I said, well, just tell them to, to do their best. Just, yeah. you know, it's, it doesn't have to, because they're trained to be precise. They're like, this is exactly what the composer wanted. This is what we have to reproduce. Mm. And I was like, well, no, it's not what the composer wanted. It's the sound of a wind that some idiots changed on a <laughs> computer. So, so then they played the notes and that, and I, and I was like, this sounds like Ligeti. It sounds like, like, like Bartok. It sounds like a lot of the string quartet stuff I really like. God, were they just doing it randomly? You know, did they, anyway, so that was that song, you know? Amazing. Because when, when I first heard my childhood, I thought there was some kind of instructional element where you told the players, you know, you must play something different from this player or you must wait for this, you know, some kind of serial quality. But it was all notated out exactly it as you It was all notated out, yeah. 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 And I mean, watch, you weren't there, were you? Sadly not, no. No, watching them do it, oh my God, you felt for them. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice, though. I mean, surely they found that a challenge. I remember there's a, there's a Johnny Greenwood interview where he talked about most string players refer to doing pop records as playing balloons because it's just kind of breathes on the on the score on sheet. The yeah. yeah, but yeah. you know, so when they went in to do Radiohead, it was more interesting, you know. And so I imagine surely they, that was a memorable day for them. I imagine it was a very memorable day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, 
But I did, I did want to ask, you know, we met together earlier this year in the Wrestler's Pub in Highgate. It was less of a five-day morning and more of a three-day hangover. <laughs> um, Not for me. No, yeah, James wasn't <laughs> drinking. But we discussed ideas around doing this podcast. So I'm curious to know why you decided to do a podcast for this album. Or was it your decision? <laughs> It was, it was uh, our manager's idea, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so. Andy said you should do a podcast. Mm. And because I'd done a podcast with you, Robin, around the Beatles before, mm. um, I thought this is a good way of... I agreed that we should, and I thought this is a good way to kind of maybe tell the story of the band a little bit from our perspective mm. rather than from at one one removed, the way it's told by journalists or, or whatever, um, to really talk about some of the things that are deeply felt that really matter to us. Um, so it seemed like a good opportunity. Mm. It's easy. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so you I mean, touched on that there, but do you want to talk about maybe how you first got together back in the 90s or how you first met? Um, there was a great line you said when we did that Beatles podcast, which was, you know, growing up in Fleet uh, near Basingstoke, and, and you said it felt like nothing would ever happen, that London was very far away, and you said you, you turned that suburban boredom into an aesthetic <laughs> which is yeah. a great line but can you talk a bit more about what growing up there was like and how and what drew you to each other so can i just make a a, a comment here? he did not grow up in fleet he grew up in cove which is okay. two and a half miles down the road right but, but uh, which, one's, which one's posher when i joined the clear until i moved to fleet fleet's <laughs> posher obviously so <laughs> so to be in the band i had to live in fleet so i had to convince my parents to up really? sticks and moved move to fleet yeah they're still there so. yeah uh, well, I mean, so I think that I've said I've, I've almost got like rote answers for this because I've been asked mm. this a lot of times ah, in different okay. ways. But I'm going to try and not give you a rote answer. Which the rote answer that pitch, I said to Pitchfork was like you're on the border of the countryside and you're on the border of the city, but you weren't really in either mm. completely. So there was a sense of interesting incompleteness about it. But I mean, for me, my my, my memory of it really is the stillness. The, the sense that as a as a child as a teenager you want things to happen right you want you want to have fun you want to see people there was just a sense that you could walk for like half an hour and not see anyone that nothing was gonna nothing had happened yesterday nothing's gonna happen today and nothing will happen tomorrow and and so from that kind of mental emptiness an almost sense of anxiety uh, things began to to form you know like. But when they formed, they formed very, very intensely, like friendships, like um, ideas, um, recommendations about culture. And this is in a, this was, was obviously in a time when you couldn't go onto the internet to find out about stuff. You had to have someone tell you about it, or you had to read about it, or you had to watch like, oh, there's this this season of films by Robert Bresson, or as we would have said at the time, Robert Bresson. Um, <laughs> On um, on Channel Four, but they're at two in the morning. But I've set my vi- is your video working? Because I haven't set mine. And then it'd be like the the tape would be shared round. You know, like what did you think of um, Lancelot du Lac? What did you think of you know whatever? And um, so you had to really work to find the things that made sense culturally. Then you, it did, wasn't given to you. And when you got it, you, there was no way you could just click through onto something else. You had it, and even if you didn't understand it, you bloody well watched it again to give it a second chance. And I think as a result, while the the range of culture we could experience there was narrower, we we experienced it so much more intensely. Mm. You know, that would be that's kind of how I remember it, just a place where you did get a sinking sense that 
that it was going to swallow you alive if you let it, that, that mm. mental illness might not be far away if you let it, mm. but that, you know, there was a way out and that was through creating, you know. And, and in those days it led to London too. I mean, London <laughs> was the place where you would go to create. And I've often questioned whether that was the right decision since, but that was yeah. the decision at the time, you know. Um, and then maybe after London, you might go to New York. <laughs> that was the road when you were 16. Still maybe. time, Nick. Still, yeah, still time. <laughs> and do you remember meeting Alistair? Uh, yeah. So in terms of how we met, I, I, obviously I didn't live in Fleet mm. at that time. But we, we, went to, upmarket code. <laughs> we went to a 6-1 college, which all of the schools in the area kind of fed into. So, And my school had its band, of which I was a member, and our school had a band. And they poached me from my band um, after... I don't, we, we kind of met in history class, I think, originally, and we went on a Battlefields tour, which descended into chaos pretty quickly after a right. few bottles of French wine. But um, I just tapped you on the shoulder, didn't I? I was like, oi, what's that on your pencil case? Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> um, it's a load of band names. And I'm like, what, Razor Cuts? You've heard of Razor Cuts? Felt, you've heard of Felt. Oh, and then I was like, <laughs> at the time I was wearing like a Scotland FC shell suit. <laughs> so he, he thought I was like, he was completely confused, yeah, you know. Yeah. He had long hair and he had all the right clothes. And I was there like short hair in a shell suit going, you like the razor cuts? I like the razor cuts. So, um, you know, it was a bit of an interesting uh, introduction. And I couldn't believe we managed to poach you because the band that you were in was so much more competent than our band. Competent without a single song, as I recall. There was no focus at all. It was but just... we were incompetent without a single song. <laughs> oh, no, you had a lot of songs. <laughs> and what particular bands did you have in common? Because another thing I remember about when you went to the pub is I, I kept mentioning a band and you said you hated them. Yeah, we, could, we could go on all night doing yeah. that. But like, um, I think we narrowed think... it down to you liked the Beatles and television and that was the... At, at this point, brilliant. it was Space Men Free with a real right. link, I think, weren't yeah. they? We'd, we'd both kind of discovered them. So uh, the, uh, Alistair and Innes were more into... They knew their 60s history really well. Mm. And I was kind of knew my contemporary stuff at the time mm. pretty well. So we, there was a lot of changing of tapes and yeah. things, which was great because uh, I could hear where all the influences of, of the, all the New Zealand stuff I was listening to was coming right. from, from the, Al lending me the birds and television and stuff. So, yeah, um, so, yeah there was a lot of good uh, exchanging going on back then. So, And, and do you have nostalgia for that time? Because... When you talk about it now, it's obviously a kind of culture that doesn't really happen anymore because of the internet. So do you think something is lost because of that now? It's just different, isn't it? Yeah, it's different. I mean, you've got everything. Yeah. Press of a button now, haven't you? So, mm. Which is pretty cool too. So, I don't, I don't know how young people now find their way through that. Mm. It was much more, we were much more limited in how, how we'd access that culture in those days. I mean, I religiously buy all the music papers every week and listen to John Peel and that that was all you had to go on really yeah. so um and I mean a, a similar thing actually and this is part so we did touch on this when we talked before but the 1960s in that time which would be 1989-1990 they were like some kind of weird anterior world that was about to disappear forever no one could have predicted the massive swing cultures taken back towards the 60s at that time it was like this is it. It's, it's all going to go soon. And you were looking in charity shops for records. Sometimes you'd find really good records. You'd you'd be thinking about 
the production. That's the thing that always stuck with me from 60s stuff. I like the, the melodies and I like the words, but the production felt like it had been recorded through stained glass, you know. Mm. Compared to that 1989 drum production, it was scratchy. It was, that, it was horrible, dry, nasty production that was going on with bands. I mean, electronic music was going through a renaissance, but we didn't know it at the time. But, and then later on, the radio head sound, which was more kind of squelchy and grey, you know, but, and you'd look, and you'd go back, and you'd listen to the compression, and you'd listen to the the, the kind of plate reverbs that were on the '60s records, and it sounded so beautiful and organic. It was like calling from this like radio land, this place that was lost. Mm-hmm. And a few people felt like that's our place, you know, that's our place. And and I knew a lot of those people where I lived. And then later, when I went to university in Edinburgh, I knew a lot more of them. But it's the way that you could think of the 1960s then, it was like your own little secret. It was like something that you wanted to bring into the culture and and preserve and build on. Whereas that meaning of the 1960s now, it, it, it's only preserved in the memories of people like me. I mean, it's... It became and, and it became a mainstream thing because all those bands wanted to be like the Kinks or the Beatles late, a few years later and um, made it really boring, I think. So... There, but there was an artistic kind of element to it, like a really, a really beautiful element of thinking about like the that sort of that place where things sounded real and true, whereas now they don't. Mm. You know, that was definitely a big, big part of what went into our sound. Well, you know? I mean, that's a lovely image of the stained glass because you know one of the first things that attracted me to the way the clientele sounds is it kind of sounds like incredible 60s music through this almost nostalgic filter and with suburban light that was literally because it was lo-fi you know four track stuff but then when you evolved and moved on to record after record even with higher production values it still somehow maintained that filter (laughs) which is the mystery of the band i don't know how you know it still sounds kind of like memory somehow it still sounds very nostalgic and i was going to actually ask a question about you know, that that sound, because a band you often remind me of and have been compared to is Boards of Canada. And are you fans of that band yourselves? Um, they're my favourite band, actually, right. that are currently around. Yeah, I think mm. they're, they're like wizards. They, they're like Lennon and McCartney in 67 to me. They you are. Just, they just don't know how they do it, yeah. you know. I'm yeah. not, not sure I've even ever heard them. You'll have to play, play them on tour. God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's a brilliant quote Simon Reynolds said about boards of canada which i think kind of applies to you because he's he's talking about how you know while every boards of canada album is different their music is kind of rooted in this core aesthetic and he said their intent with music has the right to children was to create a haunted haven outside the onward flow of time why wouldn't they want to live there forever haunted haven is a great way to describe your music so i wanted to ask like how do you feel about the way your music has changed and stayed the same Crikey, that's a big question, isn't it? Yeah. I think it has changed quite significantly, particularly over the last two records. Mm. Um, but the, it's kept some some inner kind of spirit too, like some aesthetic um, that of, of delicacy and elegance. Even as we, like, listen to bands like that are more electronic, like Ultramarine, they have the same delicacy and elegance. And that calls to me, that speaks to me. Mm. Um, but I think that 
as things have built up in terms of different ideas and different things, I still think that that it's kind of a strange thing to say for a band that sells the number of records we do, but I want everything we do to be, um, what's the word, uh, you know, like easily understood, easily liked, wh- whistleable, you know, um, I've always wanted that, but so I've always tried to keep that, just whatever we've done. But um, I think that part of how it's changed has been changes in technology, the way we've recorded it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, with the four track, it was, with well, the eight track, actually, it was very, there was only so many things you could do. So we just found the sound that, that worked. Mm. Then we had a 16 track, and that was actually worse. That was harder to use <laughs> yeah. at the lower track. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and then we went into studios and that was always a disaster, wasn't it? Well, not always. Uh, we got there in the end. Well, by the time we found one that we liked, <laughs> yeah, we had been some, through... Well, we had some terrible mm. studio experiences before then. Yeah. There's a, a yep. whole album there, isn't there, at some point. Of, of terrible studio terrible music. <laughs> because I remember you saying last time I interviewed you, you basically tried to re-record a lot of the suburban light stuff and then realized mm-hmm. those tape versions was far superior yeah they yeah. had some kind of a feel to them that we weren't getting in the studio i mean we went out to i remember we did all sorts of things we went out to kent didn't we do you remember going out to rural kent <sighs> to a studio that was in the middle of nowhere and we'd been there and we'd liked the guy who owned it and the minute we showed up he was like right see you then i'm, I'm letting my apprentice uh, do this one <laughs> and, um, and he was just was... he was smoking so much skunk <laughs> that you just couldn't think straight and we were there for like three days we we're sleeping in the studio wow. and we had to we had to record. sleeping in a caravan was it a caravan behind the studio oh, okay. God, it was just traumatic <laughs> it was horrific and we we were doing all sorts of things. We were trying to get dub versions of how there's a song House on Fire and we, we wanted to record a dubby version. And I I was playing a scientist record in the studio saying, let's make it sound like this. And so Mark went through and started to bang some oil drums and it didn't sound right and it wasn't really going anywhere and I couldn't sing it in tune. And it's the kind of thing that shreds your nerves so much mm. that you think, I never want, I, I can't do this. I'm not cut out to be a musician. I've just got it in my head, but I can't actually express it. And then um, you go back to the things you did on a four-track tape and it sounds to you like, oh, yeah, this is, this is, there's something real about this, something true about this. Same so for I, the, I can the, the 16-track as well with yeah. Violet Hour. I think we, that, that has mm. probably the most interesting atmosphere of any of the records we've done. And I think, yeah, it's a beautiful um, album. I'm not sure how we ended up with that because it was a lot of it was a very difficult record to make. I think with that equipment that we had at the time. But I was but, reading all sorts of books at the time and or, or talking to people about production techniques, <laughs> just making things needlessly complicated. <laughs> you know, like I read that um, that Martin Hannett had taken he'd recorded the second Joy Division record very very close mic'd straight into the desk as much as possible, mm. and then he'd. He'd brought, he'd set up a, 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 some microphones at the end of a basketball court and some speakers at the other end, and he broadcast it through the basketball court mm. and and recorded the reverberations of it, and that was the reverb, and he just stuck that up a little bit, and suddenly there was this incredible atmosphere. So I was reading about creative um, studio tricks, and and so perhaps like going a little, getting a little bit too enthusiastic about it. So I would have like a microphone that went into a space echo, like a Roland space echo, which adds like to the signal. And then it would come off the space echo and split. And one bit would go in the desk and another bit would go into a guitar amp, 
with a mic with a with a bass microphone on it, and so it'd be like <laughs> on it. <laughs> then it would go into the mixer, and there'd be two or three tracks for each. It, the voice would be recorded over two or three tracks, and we did have some. We got some engineers in to help us, and they just ran away screaming. <laughs> they were just like, we "What re- are you even doing?" Reverb on everything as well. Even the yeah. bass had reverb on it. <laughs> oh, <that record>. nice. <laughs> And yeah. when we recorded the drums, we didn't realise that you were supposed to record them quite loud. So yeah, the drums are so quiet, quiet and yeah. far away. But it gives um, it a, a special atmosphere. Yeah, that definitely. Yeah, I mean, I worked hard on those sort of stupid tricks to give it a special atmosphere. And, and it might have been easier just to record it very, very simply and cleanly um, and then work on, on the, the, the kind of the reverbs and whatnot afterwards, but then it would have sounded like every other record, yeah. you know? And and that's what the one thing we didn't want was to sound like other bands. So and then when we went in the studio to do uh, Strange Geometry afterwards, it, it the initial mixes did sound like every other record. And really? we were like, we were, we were a bit worried about it, but I think yeah. we kind of took a bit more control of... It's still got the, a very warm... Well, yeah, sound. we got there in the end, yeah. I think, so... Um, yeah, it had to be mixed two or three times, I yeah, think. There was, yeah, there was... I mean, what's interesting is that you're still really interested in those production techniques. And, you know, modern production, what's so fascinating about it is that it's still about really pushing stuff as far as it can go, you know. Like, what was that trap song you mentioned? It's called Ash Dem. Ash Dem. Yeah. Have you heard that that Danny Brown JPEG Mafia album (laughs) came out this year? The production is just absolutely mad. It just sounds like everything's in the red. Yeah. But it's just, it sounds incredible as well, just yeah. vast sound. And it just makes you think that, you know, you know, we, we were, we we're almost going into kind of 60s nostalgia phase there, but there's still so much incredibly exciting music being made, isn't there? And, and I think yeah. that's what's so interesting about the new album is that you are taking your cues from some of those points as well. From more contemporary things, yeah. Mm. I mean, we. I think I have the, I have my specific vision of how I want to do things or what I'm interested in communicating but but I I want to get to that place but there are so many ways to go Mm. and then once you have the technology in your hands suddenly it's like I don't have to play the boring old guitar anymore Mm. I can I can score something for a cello I can you know I can do whatever I want to do so the funny thing was I think when we started thinking about the new record the plan was to just try and record something as really simple with just the three of us as we do live to try and capture that live sound which we've never really managed to do on record so right. um, and it couldn't be further from that oh. now really so, so <laughs> it's always yeah. the idea for the next yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but James you touched on playing it live there and how are you going to tackle this live because it is it is kind of there's a lot of other stuff going on your setup is so minimal but now you've got drum loops uh, you know the sub bass and string arrangements how, how are you going to do that live well, I see that as Mark's problem, yeah, really. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is he going to have uh, trigger samples and things? He's going to have a small orchestra he takes with him. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's got some trigger sample uh, mm. stuff that we're we're mucking around with. Mm. Um, so we have a few rehearsals. But like every Clintel record is quite produced, and, and it's very, very carefully mixed. Mm. And so when we decide to 
to play it as a three piece, it's always like this has to be a stripped down kind of jazzy minimalist version of mm. the record. And, and that's it always, always works. It works. Yeah. And it sounds better. A lot of people say it sounds better when we play live. Which is know, why we so. always have the idea to try and do that for the next record. Oh, but yeah. Like, yeah. It, it never happens. Yeah. Um, we're a live album? Could that well, be yeah, something? we've actually got one in the works at the moment, mm. actually. Yeah, so yeah, we've got one. Well, sounds, we've got a recording of us live that we're all happy with mm. from Portland, Oregon. Um, so we could do something with that if we ever get our act together. Mm. That could be good. Before we drill down into the album, there was another question I wanted to ask kind of more generally about your sound, or maybe specifically more the lyrics, really. You mentioned felt being an influence there. And um, uh, I asked you last time we met, um, we were talking about felt, and I said, what was Lawrence trying to do with Denim, the band he formed after felt? And you said, I don't have the faintest idea, <laughs> which is a great answer. But you said, um, I know a lot of people from art school who really like Lawrence. And I think the reason they like him is the reason anyone in art school likes anyone is that they don't understand it. It's completely enigmatic and ambiguous. There's no way into it and there's no way to understand it. I thought that's such a great, I, I, you know, I love that sentiment. I just wondered how important that is to your own music, to your own lyrics. Um, no, it's it's not. It's right. Not. It's no, not. Okay, no, no. fine. Okay, we'll scrap that. <laughs> no, we can talk about it yeah. as a contrast because I suppose that the music I make is made with love, you know, mm. and, and it's there's a lot of love goes into it, and it's about love, really. And I don't know if Lawrence's is. Mm. I don't know what Lawrence's is about. Um, I mean, I, we, even with Felt, like, I don't... I, I, can un I can't understand what he's trying to say. Mm. And, and that's part of what makes it beautiful, because I think Felt is beautiful. But then, like, after a certain point, the I can't follow it. I can't follow where he's going. Right. Okay, yeah. I don't know, do you feel the same way? I don't think mm. we should start saying, well, Phil are good and denim are bad because lots of people really love denim. <laughs> yeah. And go-kart Mozart or Mozart estate. I don't want to be a, a downer. But yeah. but what affected me and was useful to me was felt. Yes. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's interesting. Um, because, you know, I, one of the things I love about the new album is it, it is very enigmatic, I think. I mean, but it is, you know, there are. it's very moving. It's very emotional. But definitely does have that quality, but it also has that sense of mystery as well. That there are clues to what something might mean, and kind of recurring motifs, and words that repeat, and musical ideas that repeat. So it feels like, you know, there is some kind of story, but yeah. the story is very, kind of almost like through the stained glass again, almost filtered. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a. I'm not like a, that big a Bob Dylan fan, but there's a there's a really good Dylan quote which I will misquote now, where he talks about what is true and what's untrue, mm -hmm. and he talks about it's where, where he mentions like the thin wild mercury sound, but he talks about the rattling of cutlery in cafes first thing in the morning is true, mm. and then he talks about things that are, are untrue and uh, it's it's the polished phrases of. of kind of professional melancholy songwriters are untrue. You know, like, so for me, I read that as Leonard Cohen, you know, like the polished phrases of Leonard Cohen are not true, but the rattling of cutlery in a cafe is true. Mm. And it's hard to, it, 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 that's obviously completely unclear and not easy yeah. to understand, <laughs> yeah. but there's something in it, but there's something in it for mm. me. And that's the, um, that I wanted to write something that's true and, and, and emotionally true and, but that won't follow. That won't have a beginning and a middle and an end. It won't. It will have. F f it will be fragmented. It will be. 
bits talking to other bits in dissonance you know that's that's what i think truth is really or, or, or in music and so that's how the album is you know it's it's not it's not in any way kind of put on it's not it's not pretentious it's just how very clearly i feel that music should be that music should be recorded and written mm. yeah there's a there's a particular idea in the album as well that i think is really interesting because in the liner notes you have this quote from roland bart which is the world is an aquarium i see everything close up and yet cut off made of some other substance i keep falling outside myself without dizziness without blur into precision and you and you did this recent interview with chick factor where you you kind of almost said the same thing where you said above all the the, the album is about not being real of being outside yourself yeah it's such an interesting idea can can you sort of elaborate on that a bit well i suppose it's one of those things that people either understand and feel or they don't you know um i had a an interview with um a lady last week who told me the most beautiful story she said that she used to wake up as a child and go to her mum's room and wake her mum up and say mummy am i real because she wow. didn't know <laughs> and, and, and I just love that story yeah. so much because it really says that story says what in in a few words what this whole record is trying to say. Right. You know that that there are times when you look around and you realize that you realize it's true that you're not actually real. Mm. You realize that you are you know somewhere else than here. Mm. And there are a lot of um you know like Borges, the 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 Argentinian writer, writes a lot about this, and he talks about someone who imagines that they dream uh, another person, and they dream them in space and in time, and they dream their habits, and they dream their hair color, and they dream their clothes, and towards the end of their life, they suddenly realize that well, they've been dreaming this person, someone else has been dreaming them, mm. you know. And I love that. I love that. That's <laughs> that's how I feel. It's like, I don't know, like maybe I get everything the wrong way around. Maybe there's something wrong with me. But I almost feel like when you're at the real height of a fever, that's when you see things as they really are. Right. And the rest of the time we misremember and we misrecognize. And and the precision in that Roland Barthes quote, I love so much because mm. it's not about losing yourself. It's not about oblivion. It's not about falling down. It's about precision in that feeling because it's a precise clear controlled feeling yeah and that's a lot what this record is about you know that you're just gone it's for a moment you're from one moment to the next you're gone and where did you go you don't know amazing i mean the, what it made me think of is there's a brilliant proust quote which my friend paul sent me which is um to do with this idea that a lot of memories that we have kind of exist outside of us. I've got, he says, this is why the greater part of our memory exists outside of us in a dampish breeze, in the musty air of a bedroom or the smell of autumn's first fires. Should I read the whole thing? Because it's, I'm oh, making I'm, a bit of a balls, balls up. Of it. Really. <laughs> 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 Most nostalgic footballer, Proustian. You know. um, <clears throat> habit weakens all things. But the things which are best at reminding us of a person are those which, because they were insignificant, we have forgotten, and which have therefore lost none of their power. 
which is why the greater part of our memory exists outside us in a dampish breeze in the musty air of a bedroom or the smell of an autumn's first fires. So this idea that, you know, things that, because you haven't sensed them for a while or experienced them for a while, it's almost as if the things themselves have this power. They, it's almost like they are the memory themselves. So that's the kind of thing that when you say, you know, it's about kind of being outside yourself, that's the kind of thing it made me think of. Yeah, I love that. I don't remember ever reading that before in, in Proust. But, um, it sounds like Cleontel lyrics as well, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it sounds also quite like Borghesian, mm. you know. Um, but there's every writer is in Proust. You mm. know, there's, mm. you, there's, it's kind of limitless, really. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I think that that probably... I don't have the mental agility to really get my head around that and see how it would, how it does uh, pertain to what we do. But I, I certainly respond to it mm. a lot. I love it. Yeah. We have talked about the Beatles at length before, and um, you're not such a fan of the White Album. How do you feel about the later period? <laughs> James, you? Uh, me. Um, I only got the first six records, so I don't. <laughs> right. Beyond that, I don't think I've ever heard them all, all the way through. Right. So okay. um, I lived in Liverpool for a few years, okay. and you're just overwhelmed by Beatles memorabilia yeah. and, and magical mystery tours. <laughs> and so I, I, it put me off the Beatles for a long, long time afterwards. I was just. You were never much a fan of the Beatles to begin with, though. Were you? I, I was a big fan of Robert Soul. Oh right. Mm. And uh, Revolver back in the day when I was uh, I, I stole my mum's records. I still got them. I feel a bit bad. <laughs> you um, seem very much 65, 66 guys, Beatles guys. Is that about right? Or... I guess so, yeah. yeah. So maybe up to 67. Yeah. At a push. At a but... push, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, this album feels very White Album-esque. Better give it a listen now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, the line I always love about in the White Album is that Cry Baby Cry... Voices out of nowhere put on specially by the children for a lark. And I think there's something of that in I'm Not There Anymore. Do you, do you think so? It's Because it's also a compendium of different styles, the way the White Album is. and It seems to be about childhood as well. It is, yeah. Um, and, and it is a compendium of different styles. But I don't really know the White Album all that well. My mm. impression of it is that it doesn't really gel. It doesn't mm. really stick. I mean, sorry, don't attack me. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> And I hope that this record, it gels a bit better. Mm. I mean, I feel like maybe with the White Album, they were trying to bring back some ideas that they'd had when they were younger, perhaps, like or, or that they'd music they'd heard that was old, like mm. vaudeville or rock and roll or, or whatever, whereas this is more about music that, that, that happened after we started playing, mm. that we're now starting to use ourselves. So there's a difference there. Mm. I think, um, but yeah, it sprawls like the White Album, definitely. Mm. Yeah. When I mentioned this to James, the idea that's about childhood, you, you, you said, yes, around the year 1997. What was the significance of that particular era? Well, that was the start of a big change, really. Mm. That's when I moved to London was in 1997. It's also when my mother died. Mm. And um, I, that that kind of moment meant that I left behind the suburbs like it, I didn't necessarily physically leave them behind but I left them behind they weren't home anymore like a door closed on it you know um and and as a result of them not being home anymore they became they like became luminous they became unreal 
And they shone into everything I was doing. Like I would write about those walkways that I remembered by the school where, you know, a gang of six kids lurked to beat up any latecomer, you know, and, and I, but they would, they would just sort of become almost mythical, these places, mm. because I couldn't go back to them and experience them, and experience them like, I, like I had as a child. That was gone. That was over, you know. And so for me, that's 1997 is a, is a significant year for those reasons, but also because that's when we, we first started playing gigs in London, you know, and, We'd we'd finished our education when we when we finished our education our degrees we went to the dole office this is what it was like in those days yeah. remember yeah. and we all signed on and we we went back to our mate's garden and opened a bottle of champagne <laughs> <laughs> which, which we'd spent our gyros on <laughs> literal champagne uh, socialists yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. unemployment starts here we can do something interesting with our lives now. Uh, and I'm sure, of course, it's not like that now. But that, mm. that's that was 1997. Yeah, you know, so a, a year that 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 changed the before and the after for me. Right. Yeah, because I mean, again, going back to that Chick Factor interview, you said I like to think of the album as a kind of emotional autobiography set to music, but where all the details have been blurred and edited out. Yeah. So that again goes back to this idea that you know, there's this story almost lurking under there, but it's quite inscrutable it's underpainted yeah mm. so it's so you know it's been painted really really carefully and and in in great detail and with great realism and then i've taken a big brush and gone <laughs> over the top of it. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the cleontel podcast join us next week when i will be joined by alistair and james who will give me a track by track guide to the fantastic new album i am not there anymore the Cleontel podcast was engineered by Jack Allen at Audio Always, produced and edited by me, and uh, mixed and mastered by Johnny White. For tour dates, please head over to thecleontel.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at Robin Allender on social media, and my website is robinallender.com. And you can also check out Johnny White's music and comedy, which is really good, at johnnywhitereallyreally.bandcamp.com. See you next week.